Jacqueline, your therapist, and I'm here discussing real problems with real people, no small talk. I am so excited about today's episode because it is such an important one yet still so taboo to talk about. This one is all about body weight and eating disorders, emotional eating, and most importantly, it's about trauma. Our culture is literally obsessed with food. There is so much information out there right now about food and diets and vegan, vegetarian, paleo, whatever it is. People are obsessed with getting it right and eating in this perfect way and the perfect health and all that. And even in recovery from eating disorders, there is a focus on food and learning how to eat like a normal person. Now, I'm not discounting that, but I'm asking what is beneath all of that? Well, I think it's really all linked to trauma. I think that this obsession with it pulls us out of dealing with what it's really about, which is how we're managing our trauma versus healing it. Now, I know personally when I emotionally eat, uh, overeat or undereat, whatever, and manage my food with emotions in some capacity, or even if I'm focused on my body a lot, it's usually that I'm pushing down a feeling in some capacity. Now, why would I do that? Because, of course, those feelings are uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with them. Sometimes I don't even notice it's happening because I can dissociate and think that everything's fine on the surface, yet meanwhile I'm craving a lot of dessert, for example, or uh, focusing on a particular body part or whatever it is. It comes in a myriad of ways. But here's the thing. That tiny moment where I'm reaching for something as a crutch I'm doing myself a disservice because I'm probably pushing down not only those current feelings, but the key to the deeper pain. Now, I think we all have trauma. I think even if you're born, you have trauma. So I think the key to health is actually dealing with this trauma and not repressing it. There's a great book out there called When the Body Says No by Dr. Gabor Mate, and his whole theory is about how so much of illness, yes, while we have these genetic factors that predetermine uh, whether or not we perhaps are, are more prone to certain diseases, the trigger point is really the emotional and trauma suppression and repression. Now, that trauma cannot be healed unless we deal with it head on. We might not even be conscious of that or connected to the trauma in any way. Today, I'm interviewing a woman named Jessalyn, whom I've known for quite some time now. She's been in a recovery recovery program from an eating disorder for years, and recently she had a revelation which she posted on social media about how she finally understood that her body weight really had to do with her unhealed trauma more than it had to do with the food. Her hair is very thick and curly and completely unapologetic. I personally think it looks amazing. It's the kind of hair I always wanted when I was younger. Now, I know she would prefer it to be less voluminous and much more under control. It reminds me of someone who feels shame at some part of themselves as if they feel the need to tone themselves down in some way or or hide who they are in some capacity. What a metaphor for probably how she deals with her trauma and food. Here's my interview with Jessalyn. I'm curious about your whole story about, you know, when you were younger and like how it all happened and we'll, we'll get there in the beginning, but I, I wanted to know, like when you posted mm-hmm. about your, when you posted about your weight and how you had this connection that your weight had nothing to do with the overeating, like you've, you, I, I could see that you felt emotionally that you've 
it was in a way that seemed very new than before because mm. I know you that you, mm. you 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 so strongly saw past the weight and saw the trauma mm -hmm. and that was what like uh, that was what appealed to me that I, I, I thought to myself I was like oh my god like I have to have her talk because you see it you see it you had that little like the moment of clarity you know yeah I mean so the post I just posted on Facebook about where I'm at um, Which I always think you should have your own blog, by the way, because you're so <laughs> candid and you say it so well that I'm like, oh, every day I'm like, what is she going to say now? <laughs> well, I have Facebook. <laughs> There's a lot less work involved. It's <laughs> kind of a blog. <laughs> so I am, what triggered it? Mm -hmm. God bless her. My beautiful millionaires. Law of Attractionist, Doctor Size Two Sister, mm -hmm. posted on Facebook a video about a diet, basically, and tagged me. And I was furious. And 10 years ago, I would have felt something but not known it was fury. Mm -hmm. um, and swallowed it and thought it was hunger and just eaten over that post. Or there is a point where I would have been furious and unleashed on her my wrath mm -hmm. of how dare you um, and still never felt my real feelings around it. And where I'm at today, you know, I have been expressing to my family slowly but surely and very uncomfortably for all that I've become aware of my trauma in a way I never have before and that I am going to deal with it. Okay, wait, so let's rewind just a little bit. Were you, in relation to your sister, always the one who is the heavier of the two? Yes. Okay. Um, definitely as adults. When I was a child, I wasn't heavy, but I was always, everyone was always focused on my eating because I was a compulsive Overeater, okay. which back then they just thought I had a voracious appetite. Did you think you had a, um, an issue with food at that point? No. Yeah. And particularly black folks don't think they have eating disorders. Yeah. It is culturally not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't anything anyone talked about or recognized. It was just, I like to eat. And if I like to eat, then eventually I'm going to get fat. And I, I just heard I was fat. But I wasn't fat, and that wasn't even what my mother was saying. And you know, when we when we are able to talk about it now, she can say, "I didn't want you to get fat," but all mm -hmm. I heard was, "You're fat." Yeah. And that's really confusing messaging when you're looking at your body and you don't think there's anything wrong with it, but it feels like everyone's telling you something is wrong with it, and then you're doing this behavior, which logically makes sense if you keep doing it. Yeah. There will be something wrong with it, and it's just like really cyclic. So um, I wasn't fat. When I was a kid, I was very developed, mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't fat, and I became fat. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy. Yeah. Um, but my sister has always been thin. Yeah. My sister has always been very beautiful and bubbly and popular. And um, and I imagine she was pigeonholed that way, so it's like that's the identity that they were creating for her. She's that, and you're this. You're Jesslyn this way, and she's that way you I'm know? sure there was some of that and I'm sh you know I think we 
we create the identities ourselves and the yeah. identities are created for us and it's all a big you know hodgepodge but I don't want to get too much into her inventory I just know when your perfect quote-unquote sister is posting about your imperfect body in such a public forum so painful you know and she had no clue you know yeah. she had no clue um which in essence is is part of the trauma right because she's in a certain amount of denial about that even affecting you so if she's like that she probably grew up in that kind of patterning right in essence she learned that somewhere maybe from your parents i imagine a certain level of denial of like everything's fine and i'm just throwing this like kind of issue at you and not even seeing that it could affect you in that way sure yeah i mean like i i think we all have our roles and um if I, I were going to cast my sister in a role, I think she'd be a really great uh, candidate uh, for the role of happy-go-lucky, watch me tap dance, and look mm. over here, everything's fine. Yeah. And and at points in her life, she's been able to, to acknowledge that that's what she did when she was a kid. And then there are points in her life where I don't think she sees that as any sort of pathology it's just her personality and well, the way she yeah. wants to live her life you know um and then it makes sense almost if she's playing that dynamic and like you said you're you're now present to the fact that um your weight has a you know has to do it, it's a direct response to the trauma that you suffered if her response is to check out and like kind of run away and be free you took it on and ingested it literally to push it all down that one I'm not following. What do you mean? So, you know, in okay, so I know you a little bit, and I know some of the trauma happened to you personally, but there's also the dynamic of, like, family trauma and attachment, right? And if you received an insecure attachment, chances are your siblings did as well, mm-hmm. m- most likely. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule. And if her kind of emotional response to that is, is like, I'm fine, whatever, and she runs away, and she's, like, in essence, free and light, and that you instead of responding to it that way because that's like it was like almost a reaction then instead of saying i'm fine and free and light it's like no no no, nothing's fine i'm fine on the surface nothing's fine i'm gonna eat the feelings like with food like push them all down Mm. and that was your way kind of of compartmentalizing it like she kind of like runs away and yours kind of went like internally you ran away like i'm gonna push like literally push my feelings down i'm gonna eat my feelings yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I think in our childhood, my sister more acted out and I more acted in. Yeah, which um, I think is a big thing with, you know, eating disorders. If you're talking about overeating, well, e- even anor- uh, the other side of that, like an, if you're going to go extreme, like an anorexic would still be acting in because it's a way to like, you're you're not pushing your feelings out. You're still keeping them in. Mm-hmm. You're just not ingesting. Oh, so yeah. literally not in either. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what, so what kind of uh, revelations have you had since that moment where you're like, oh, I realize this is a sign of trauma. and Since which moment? Since you posted that on Facebook and you had your moment of like, well, I emotionally think it's connecting. Important. I'd like to talk about the revelation I had within the moment. Okay, yes, that's what I'm asking. So after my sister posted that, I was having feelings and I have enough recovery from my eating disorder to know I didn't want to eat over it. I knew I could. I know that's still a choice. Mm -hmm. I have choice every day. Um, But I knew that wasn't a choice I wanted to make. Um, And so, and when I have a feeling still, 
it doesn't happen as much as it did before I got into recovery from my eating disorder, but hunger is an immediate after effect. It's not just, it's hard to, I think, describe to people who haven't experienced it or who haven't yet identified that they are experiencing it, Mm -hmm. but my body will feel hungry. Me too, I've had that same experience, yeah. And, you know, for so many years, I I just listened to my body and Mm -hmm. ate. Um, And even if I would be eating massive amounts of food, but it still felt hungry, you know? So I kept feeding it and it defied logic because you know after a certain point, I can't possibly be hungry, but the body kept feeling it. And so I gave the body what it, I think I gave the body what it was, I thought it was telling me it needed because the world, my relationships, my family, my lovers were not giving me what I needed. Mm -hmm. I took care of me with food. So anyway, you know, she posts this thing, I feel shame, I feel anger, I feel all these feelings, and I feel hunger. I know I don't want to give in to the hunger, so then the next choice down the list is, do you want to give in to the anger? Yeah. And I, you know, there were a lot of things, I choice words I thought I could call her up or text her up and say, uh, why don't I post something on Facebook about being a narcissist and tag her? And I, you know, I just... <laughs> had all of these feelings and I was like, that's not my real feeling either. That's just as much a reaction as, you know, giving into the food. Which is amazing to even have that level of consciousness. It's taken many years of a lot of, you know, work and spiritual transformation to be able to, you know, look at my thinking in that way. And, um, And support, you know, I reached out to a friend and was like, this happened and I have some feelings about it and Part of growing up in a dysfunctional family, at least my dysfunctional family, is, I don't know if this is in a textbook anywhere, it probably is, but it feels like there's like a truth teller in the family, and that truth teller gets the brunt of the punishment. I swear, that was me. (laughs) That's probably why we connect. That's why we're friends. (laughs) And I would see, like, this isn't right. And I feel like I would say something or I'd write something because I started writing when I was very young. And, but I would get met back with, no, this is fine. You know, we're not going to talk about it. This is fine. You don't know what you're talking about. And so, you know, my perception of reality is skewed. And... When I'm seeing things as they are, I often feel shame for seeing things as they are. And uh, even though I'm a writer and I'm very, you know, articulate and, you know, have no problem having a voice in public spaces, the backlash of that, the internal backlash, is shame for speaking out. Yeah. And um, so anyway, you know, I, I didn't want to react in anger. And so I, I called this friend and she supported me and what, I, what, what this is where I was going. It was, it's always helpful for me, and I've had this experience with you, I reach out to someone and say something weird is happening and I have a weird feeling. And their first reaction is, well, that's crazy what that person just said or did to you. But me, it, it takes normal. me a long yeah. time to think, is, was that wrong? What happened? Am I supposed? Am I being oversensitive? And um, wait, I do the same thing. And then in regards to food, sometimes because I can use food as an emotional coping mechanism yeah. as well, is I hear the other person say that, and I can't quite yeah. take it in. And then I'm explaining the situation while like stuffing my face. I'm like, oh my god, I'm totally stuffing. Like I'll have moments of that, and I'm like, yeah. okay, wait, I'm stuffing my feelings. 
I need to stop and allow myself the feeling because that's the disconnect right there. Like I can't even connect that the behavior seems crazy. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> meanwhile, I'm doing crazy behavior. Like yeah. in, in essence, I'm manifesting the, the situation that happened to me mm-hmm. inside internally. Yeah. Okay, go on. So I am, I appreciated that my friend gave me space to be ugly. Um, so I didn't have to bring it to my sister. I didn't have to post something nasty on Facebook that would hurt her feelings. Um, but I got to acknowledge some ugly feelings inside of me. And my friend just was like, let it go. And just egging me on. Like, what's the worst thing you could say? And um, a couple of F-bombs, you know, <laughs> dropped in. And then I kind of got it out. And so then I keep going down the list. Like, okay, do you want to give in to this shame? I'm not going to give in to the food. I'm not going to give in to the anger. What was under, what's under all that all the time is the shame. And the choice I make now in my life to the best of my ability is no, I don't want to give in to the shame. And then I'm just like, well, what does that look like? If you don't, if I don't go inward and feel alienated from myself, if I don't go outward, which ends up making me feel alienated from the people outside of me. Yeah. How do I how do I not feel alienated and process shame? And the best thing I was able to come up with in the moment is I need to tell somebody my truth. And it won't it can't be my sister. She can't hear it. But I ha- I have to say it. She can't hear it, but I have to say it. Um, and I want to say it in, in no uncertain terms. And the thing is, you know, like I was saying, for the past, I would say a good 18 months, maybe a little bit longer, um, as I'm approaching 40, I just really got to this point in my life where I, I want to I find who I really am again. Some, I got lost along the way. And um, I, I started sharing that with my family in ways like not coming home for Christmas after I spent every you know Christmas for 38 years with them and you know really trying to tap into what do I really want to do and only do that even if it seems selfish and my family has had some difficulty with that change and um but I can't I can't stop telling the truth because that's what I did for so long that's what ended up making a not fat girl fat yeah not telling the truth and so Anyway, I, I, I went to Facebook. I, how can I be as honest and authentic as possible with as many people as possible? Because I needed to not hide. Because mm-hmm. I'm good at hiding, so I needed to not hide. So Facebook you know, came into mind, and I posted. And I posted what I've been trying to tell my family for 18 months. Like, it's not about my career ups and downs or my financial struggles or my weight or any of the things that have been masking the issue. All I want to deal with is the issue. Yeah. And and that was the heart of my post. Like, it's not about the weight. And if you want to talk about the weight, you can effing wait. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to help me deal with my trauma, move to the front of the line because that's where I'm at. And... What was interesting, a couple people have pointed out, um, one, it started a, a, a not so pleasant texting conversation with my sister after the fact, uh, where she's just really, I think she's really struggling with 
who I'm allowing myself to be now and where she fits into that, you know, and wanting to be true to her own sensibilities and her personality. And I want her to be true to that too. Um, And my hope for our relationship is that we're able to come to a place where we can both exist as equals in the same space, where one doesn't have to give up any more of herself than, than the other, you know, for us to have harmony in our relationship and to both be seen and present and available to each other. Um, and right now it's difficult. And, you know, in that texting back and forth as a result of my post, one, she apologized and said she didn't intend to hurt me. And I responded, I don't see how you could have not seen that that would have been hurtful. And her response is, I, you know, we just go back and forth. She didn't, yeah. but she does understand now. And she can see where I'm coming from. And another result of that texting conversation was, I think, in all capital letters, why do you want to share your trauma with me? And that was really painful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And really revealing. And, you know, we were texting, so I don't know if she could see, you know, after saying that, how minimizing and telling it is that that was her response to me. And well, it's all part of her own denial. You know what I mean? Like her way of being is threatened if you're the one approaching the, tr- the truth and she's had this way of handling the truth that, you know, maybe to a certain level of denial, of course, like that, that's threatened and she, she's not the one who's ready to deal with it. You are. Sure. Um, but just like I don't want to be vilified for my process, I don't want to vilify yeah, her for well, her it's, process. It's not because this is about you and your, your journey. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so excuse me. She um it was it was a tough conversation and um you know we're in a interesting part place in our relationship. And with my sister she keeps saying she will she wants to be available to listen to my trauma. Yeah. Okay, I will listen. I will, you know, if you need me, I will listen. And then she says things like, "Why yeah. do you want to share your trauma with me?" And then she wonders why yeah. I don't just openly, you know, yeah. You know, make appointments with her to share my trauma because um, I basically re-traumatized every time I try to share my trauma yeah. with her. And, you know, my answer to why do you want to share your trauma with me is because I want to be seen and you're my sister. You know, how can you love me and not know me? You know, yeah. and I won't be able to I won't be able to experience. I do believe my sister loves me, course, but I won't yeah. be able to experience my sister's love or anyone's love unless I feel seen. Yeah. You know, and, and I do a lot to hide. So I do a lot to trauma, you know, to uh, sabotage my ability to experience love because I yeah. hide. But, um, you know, I, 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 I need to be I need to be truly known in all facets of myself um, for our relationship to, to get where I think we both want it to be. So another reaction to the post, my dad responded to the post um, saying things like, you know, I never talked about your weight when you were a child and. You know, I always thought you were beautiful, and I never blah, 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 blah. And it was all, wait, 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 wait. it's such the traditional male response. And I was like, just like, did I mean, you're totally yeah. missing the point. Like, you're exactly, you're what doing you the said. exact opposite yeah. of what I said I, yeah. I needed. And I knew he didn't see it. Yeah. And, you know, my, my healing allowed me then to respond to him and, and just say that, you know, Dad, I know you love me, and you're doing it. You know, yeah. You, you just your your idea of how you should respond to to this post is to talk about my weight, yeah, and not say a single word about my trauma, 
and he had nothing to say. He has since said nothing. My dad like cannot say the words. He can't find the words. Yeah. He can't face it. And um, what was what was helpful about that post is even my family is my family, and we've come a long way since I was a child. But we are who we are, and you know, going to them for support. Sometimes I get milk. You know, uh, you know what do we say? Go, you go, go to the to hardware the store. store for milk. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I they, sometimes they had a shipment of milk at the hardware <laughs> store, and I can pick up a pint. Um, but and I always joke with my sister that um, I go to the hardware store for milk, and I get like soy milk or like <laughs> I get like the new agey. It's spiritual. It sounds like it's nourishing, but somehow it's not really what I came here for. <laughs> version of milk. Um, and sometimes you just get nails and screws and hammered. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I didn't get what I needed from my family um, in terms of – my post was very clearly saying, I need help around around yeah. trauma recovery, and I'd love to hear anyone's experience, strength, and hope. If you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. And Which, in essence, was actually – I mean, it was the repetition of the same thing that happened when you were younger, in essence, right? I imagine, like, you suffered trauma – you're not allowed to express it, so you internalize it, you know, and then you you suffered trauma, you expressed it, and they said no. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want, you know, and I get, I get why I have compassion for it, right? Like other people don't want to admit around it because it can be very violating to their own sense of identity or feelings they don't want to feel, like that's really scary for them. And I do have compassion for that. I understand that, which is, and also, it's not even their job anymore. Like once you, you know, enter into adulthood, it, you can't go back and get this thing that you were looking for from them. Like it actually doesn't really exist in the same way because you've already been through the experience of the insecure attachment in that way. Like you can't, you, you have to fix it internally. That's that's the thing, right? Like we can't go back. Like, no, dude, every time, and it's still hard to believe because I'm like, really? Maybe it'll work this time. <laughs> but you know, I, yes yeah. and no. It's an inside job. You know, it all starts and ends with me. And I think our support systems can support can oh, help. Our support systems totally help. I mean, yeah. of course, you know that is. I mean. How many studies have been done showing that you know community is is part of you know the, one of the keys to happiness? Like you have to have that. That that might not look like your family unit. There's many other ways to get that. And that's what I got. You know, I got a lot of support from Facebook. I got like I got a a, a colleague, a friend, a Facebook friend. We've never met in actual person, but we've been Facebook friends for a few years, and I really respect her work. Um, I didn't know she was a shamanic healer and after that post she would work with me and did a session with me it was so productive and so helpful someone offered me a free EFT tapping session Uh so many people contacted me Mm -hmm. privately and shared their own experiences Mm -hmm. with um, sexual abuse with rape with molestation with eating disorders and you know these are people that either I see in real life or I see on Facebook and I see All, all the happiness, but there's a lot of trauma out there that we're not talking yeah. about. And, um, you know, just hearing other people say me too, and me too and I am experiencing uh-huh. healing in all of these different ways, you know, that was really amazing. Even though my family couldn't give it to me, I still am getting what I need, you know, what I need. Yeah. 
and 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 that's what's most important to me like i'm not i'm not in a space where i'm interested in blaming my family though i i think they still experience what's happening as a bit of blame yeah though that's not what i'm doing no i hear that and um it, it's just not it's not interesting or productive to me to to go into to blaming them but i i i do get to acknowledge what's real for yeah. me yeah and sometimes what's real for me is behavior that I'm experiencing from my family is not okay. Okay, so let's go back to the food part of this. Yeah. Okay, the juicy part. So it occurred to me while you were talking, I remember I had this thought ages ago. I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, eating disorder behavior, it exists in men and women, but let's just say, you know, generally speaking, as studies have shown, it's more prevalent in women than men, generally speaking. Mm it's shifting around that, right? Like more men are, are coming out with like mm-hmm. their own issues with food. I had this thought a while ago, I don't know, I'm just gonna like throw it out there, that a lot of girls with eating disorders suffered some kind of sexual trauma. And then it manifested that way because actually overeating and undereating is a way to desexualize. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true. And, and sexual trauma can look different. Like sometimes it's just somebody, you know, it could be somebody uh, emotionally crossing a line, not physically crossing a line, or just like um, f- feelings, vibes you took on from somebody else, sure. and then that makes you want to, you know, draw your boundaries and push away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, how are you kind of looking at it now? Now that you had the revelation, what kind of processing are you doing around this kind of stuff? Around the sexual trauma? Oh, well, what both, do you mean? right? Because they're, they're re- they, they, I'm sure they're related. Like you suffered some sexual trauma when mm-hmm. you were younger. Mm-hmm. And, and older. And older. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because patterns tend to, can repeat, right? They certainly <laughs> did in my life. Mine too. Sad but true. Um, until we fully heal them and have it, I think, like, you know, I think the key is, like, you have to shift your consciousness, but, like, we're not always in control. Like, we can think we shifted our consciousness and not have shifted our consciousness at all, and there are mm-hmm. levels of consciousness shift, etc. Um, so what kind of recovering stuff do you have now? Like, what are you looking at now to kind of head-on face the trauma with the and, and, and integrating? And how that relates to food? Well, it may seem simplistic, and in, in, in I want to go into a deeper dive if, if we can, but the first thing I would say is by not focusing on the food. Yeah. Like, the food can't be the focus right now. Um, I've been in recovery from my eating disorder for eight years, uh-huh. and um, the body and the food was the focus before recovery, and then even in recovery, the food can still be a lot of the focus because yeah. you're you know, trying to arrest the behavior and, and detox from, mm-hmm. you know, years and years of medicating with food. Um, so it's easy to just fall back on when I'm experiencing, you know, chaos or disconnect or some sort of discomfort in my life. Oh, I, I'm obviously doing something wrong with my food. I'm obviously acting out in some way and I need to fix that. And so right now, that's not my response. Um, I, right now, what I'm trying to do with food one day at a time is be willing to eat in a way that makes my body feel good, um, eat in a way that doesn't make me feel bad. 
And there are a lot of ways I can feel bad. Overeating is one. And, and just eating certain foods don't work for me. Um, and being willing to accept that and recognize when in any given day I'm having a feeling and I want to coat that feeling with food, it's like, it can feel like the mother energy I never had. Like that mother that always says, come here, baby. Everyone's being so mean to you. You don't deserve that. Mommy loves you. Here's an ice cream. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, food is literally, you know, mother's milk. <laughs> when we're when we're born, like that's one of the ways, one of the, the ways that you attach to your mother is literally mm-hmm. from the breast, the, the, the you know, the oral fixation you know Mm -hmm. like and so yeah like that that comfort of that is is real I think it's especially real if you I have a feeling if you don't receive a secure attachment from your mom in other ways that way becomes bigger because it might have been the only way that you were able to like feel the attachment which doesn't even mean it was a secure one but a way that you were able to feel attached or process that you know when you're a baby Mm -hmm. And then even when you're a child, right? Because our, you know, obviously our mother is our, our, our caretakers when, when we're younger, like whether they're good at it or not, or like mm-hmm. healthy and functioning, that's a whole different story. But if that's one of the ways, like, like when I look at my own stuff with my, my mom, like one of the things that she did is I remember there'd be like lots of desserts and, pre- you know, it was almost like the way to kind of like fantasy, you know, fantasize the way out of like, if anything was happening at home, it's like, here's this pretty thing. It's like some, I mean, it's literally like sometimes my relationship with food sometimes can be my mother's love. Yeah. Like that's the way my body processes it, even though I don't feel that consciously, you know, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I feel like my, my eating is my, it's always, it's, it's never my actual mother's love. You know, the, the feeding myself treats, um, was the this idealized fantasy fairy godmother exactly. mother yeah. whose yeah. only concern was my feelings, and now I I've noticed I can't even say I try to do this I've just noticed it started happening as I um, start to face my trauma and start to kind of differentiate from my family that when I feel fully expressed and heard and connected. I go to the kitchen and I treat myself like like this loving mother that wants me to feel good and be healthy and like the way my food tastes and you know she makes me healthy dinners and healthy snacks that involve great yummy vegetables that you know taste good and lots of fun fruits that taste good and I get treats too just in a way that's going to make my body feel good not in a way that's going to make me crash and burn yeah and you know I I just I I so appreciate that I can see that that version of my food mama comes out when the adult me, the actual me, is being honest, being completely honest and standing in my truth and being authentic with people. Well, and I think that's the other part of it is, right, you're saying that those are the actions you're taking around food, but also behind that is that you're having a level of honesty that leads to it. Because what happens in the moment, like, you know, for me, I'll notice, like, I'm not, I used to love dessert so much for so long. And then as a more recent, I don't, I don't really care for dessert as much anymore. And I don't really, oftentimes don't really like the taste of it. And Mm -hmm. I notice when I crave it, it's usually something's going on emotionally and how I process it is like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. That cookie looks really delicious and I really want it. And now it's like, 
ding, 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 ding. Okay, Jacqueline, <laughs> what is happening? Because you're never, you know, you, it's like, it's literally like 10 times out of 10, I am always not processing some emotion and instead I'm going to the sugar. And so now I'm doing this thing where like, I'll try integrating it. Like um, I'll say to myself, like <laughs> it's, it's like kind of an acting technique that I learned the Meisner technique where mm -hmm. you say whatever you're feeling and then you, I repeat it back to myself and I keep doing that until the next thing comes up and eventually I end up down the rabbit hole of like what I'm really feeling. So mm -hmm. it would start out like, I want the cookie. Yeah, Jacqueline, you want the cookie. I want the cookie. You want the cookie. Okay, I don't really want the cookie, but sugar feels so comforting right now. You think you'll feel comforted by sugar. I think I'll feel comforted by sugar. And I keep repeating that, and eventually it's down to like, I'm so angry about this other yeah. thing that had no. And it, it's helping me integrate it bit by bit, even though it's not completely grounded yet, because I mean, it's hard to remember that in every moment. It depends on what you said. I think of how honest have you been leading up to it, because it's in the tiny moments that are all of a sudden ending up in the big moment, you know? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, the the food is the tiny moment. All or the stuff that I'm being dishonest before, about is the big moment. But, but I, that's true, right? Mm -hmm. Which way do you want to look at it? Yeah. Because it can be like as simple as, you know, when I wake up in the morning and how I'm processing my feelings and going through my day and like handling little things, you know, am I compartmentalizing in any ways? And then, you know, before I know it, maybe not today. And I, I've been dishonest and, you know, some part of me like haven't been completely honest in what I'm feeling and integrated. And then two days from now, I'm like, I need that thing. And or, that's you know, the thing where it's, yeah. you know, it's about the food and it's not about the food because exactly. I can wake, there's a difference, there's an, I'm in a different emotional state when I wake up needing to eat waffles versus waking up, you know, needing to eat, you know, yogurt and some fresh fruit and granola and a coffee, right? Okay, so how are you waking up when you need to eat waffles? It, it but that's not even it. I can also wake up wanting to eat waffles and be in a great emotional state. When I wake up needing to eat waffles, there's a problem. But I can wake up wanting to eat yogurt and granola and fresh fruit in a clean state, and I can wake up needing to eat yogurt and granola and fresh fruit totally, where I'm totally, in an emotional yeah. disconnect. <laughs> yep, completely, you know, So completely. it's the food and it's not the food. As it always is. Yep. It's always a mix. So, okay. I'm curious about, I mean, I know some of it, but if you feel comfortable like sharing what some of your trauma was and how that, you know, obviously like now we know the effects, mm -hmm. one of the effects has been, you know, your, your weight and like pushing down the feelings, eating your feelings in yeah. essence. So what kind of trauma did you process? Well, or experience, I should say. I'll say, and I think, I think I may have called you after I read this. And now I can't remember the book in which I read it, but I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And I was reading some book about trauma um, or eating disorders. And it, it, the statistics were right there. <laughs> to your question, yes. <laughs> Something I want to say upwards of 85% of uh, women who were in treatment for eating disorders had experienced some sort of sexual trauma. Oh, so yeah, so what I said was, yeah, dead on. And, and I think I called you and was like, I, can't, I cannot believe it. with all of my intelligence and my degree, my master's from Columbia University, that it never dawned on me how much of a textbook case I am. Yeah. You know, that I'm not reinventing the wheel here. This is not surprising, shocking, special. This is what happens. This is what the human mind does, you know, to cope. And there was a lot of relief in that, that 
that this happens to a lot of people. And if it happens to a lot of people, that means it's by divine design. And, and that means divine design has also, in my belief, created a fail safe to correct it. Of course, of course, that's how, how it works. So what was, what happened to you? Um, a lot has happened to me. I said I've, I've been, uh, um, you know, uh, traumatized in multiple ways. Um, I think... Do you want to get into specifics of that or no? I will, okay. but just the way I want to get into it, gotcha. um, I is how it really came to a head. And for me, last year, uh, on my birthday, I was molested by a massage therapist. Um, I'd gotten myself a birthday massage, and he came into my home and fondled me, and... Um, and I froze and I it was a familiar feeling to me and I felt such shame that I couldn't that I wasn't I wasn't I, I'm not in traumatic situations the articulate strong aggressive you know strong black woman I appear to be in you know almost every other situation and and I'm coming to see that sometimes that you know, confident, strong black woman I appear to be is really a reaction to mm -hmm. who I really am, which is someone who freezes in trauma. Yeah. And this has been presented to me over and over again. And I froze. And, and since I've been reading about trauma, um, you know, shaking and um, heart racing and like all of, there are all these physical effects of freezing that I experienced shame around having because I'm like, I'm supposed to, fight them off and I'm supposed to, you know, and, and I couldn't. And um, I, I just could not. And, you know, a massage that was supposed to last 50 minutes that involved this man touching my vagina and touching my butt and my breast in ways that no massage therapist ever had and being like an inch away, like my eyes were closed and I opened my eyes, he was an inch away from my face like trying to kiss me and all I could think is this man's hands are around my neck. I'm at my home, you know, we're alone. Like this could go really, really worse. And, and my thought is just get through it, which is my has been my thought in, in most of my trauma, just survive it. And, and I'm like, you know, moving my head about just to keep him from kissing me or make it go any worse, but all the time trying to pretend like I don't really know anything weird is going on, like this yeah. is normal, yeah. just to get him out. And um, and then I just felt the shift, like he finally got like, this isn't gonna go where I wanted to go. Yeah. And he stopped and he started wrapping up. And I just was like, okay, yeah, uh-huh. Like just get out, yeah. just get him out, just yeah. get him out. And you know, when, it, when I finally locked the door and he left, a massage that was supposed to take 50 minutes had been going on for like over two hours. And that was the moment I let myself say that really was, that was wrong, you know? Um, oh my gosh, how painful. And, you know, my response afterward, I told a couple of people, people had varying reactions. Some like, well, what did you expect? You brought a man into your home and, you know, you were naked. And I'm like, I've been naked with massage therapists, you know, for years and never had this experience and I'm you know whatever that's that was the response of some and um you know some people still joke and laugh about how cool that would be to get like you know women get a happy ending and 
it wasn't cool at all. And I think if you want a happy ending and you get one, that's great. But if you don't want one, it ain't so happy. Um, and um, and I, I didn't report. The question was, are you going to report it? And my feeling was still a little bit of, well, it's not that bad. I've been raped before. This is, it's not that bad, right? But even when I was raped, it was, well, it's not that bad. I knew him. He's, he's a good guy. Like he go, he, he's like a college basketball star, and he, he's got a life ahead of him. It's not like he's the gangster and, you know, yeah. grabbed me on the corner, so I'm not going to do anything. And, when, you know, when it happened as a kid, it was, there's always a reason why it's not that bad. And how, so, how old were you when it happened, you said, as a kid? I was, I was like four or five years old. I assume that's when you started overeating. That is exactly yeah. when I started uh, overeating. Yeah. And um, so this situation with the massage therapist just unleashed yeah. Yeah. that there was a lot of trauma that I had not dealt with, sexual trauma I had not dealt with, and this was just the tipping point. And I, in recovery from my eating disorder, proceeded to gain 30 pounds like, yeah, in you started getting wonky. three months. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And really, we didn't even connect. Yeah, I do. I was just like, "What's going on?" And oh, well, I changed my food. Like this was, and finally, I was just like, I, I'd left my job. I'd gained all this weight. I was, I'd had a relationship that would had blown up on me. Like I was just a mess, and I couldn't get it back on track. And I realized, oh, when did this all start? When did the weight gain start? When did the dissatisfaction with the job start? When did everything? And I dialed it back to my birthday when this thing happened. And so that's when I called the massage company and I told them what happened. And just in doing that, I started to experience some relief. So again, the anecdote yeah. to these feelings is not the food, it's it's honesty. Yeah. It's speaking yeah. my truth. Yeah. And so with that, that really started the exploration to go back and back and back and back and really honor on my own, what um, being date raped has done to my body and to my ability to experience intimacy and to my closeness with my family, yeah. because we can't talk about that either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I was date raped when I was 20, 29, 27, 29, uh, uh, when I was a grad student at Columbia. And um, didn't report, didn't talk about that either. And subsequently had a nervous breakdown uh, about a year, a year, year and a half after I was date raped when I saw the guy randomly on the street. And, um, you know, I can push the trauma down, but man, when it comes, when it decides to come up, it's not pretty. It is not pretty. It's yeah. never been pretty. And, um, you know, I experienced shame about being victimized multiple times, yeah. you know? Um, and so, yes, I was molested when I was a child. Um, and it wasn't traditional. It wasn't my father. I was molested by children in the neighborhood, and I had one main perpetrator. And it was a girl. And so there's just all these ways that I experienced shame around that event. And, you know, she used to tell me, I'm like four years old, and and I experienced shame for believing what she told me, but it's what four-year-olds would believe. She would tell me that she would kill my parents if I ever told. 
And that's a lot of pressure to put on a four-year-old, you know? And, you know, I, I can't remember how old she was, but she could not have been more than 14 herself. And as an adult, I can know that this must have been happening to her. And I don't, I don't have resentment or hatred or how, I don't know. I'm sure some, someone's response would be to have resentment or hatred toward that girl because she, she was a perpetrator and that makes perfect sense. Um, but that, that's not, I've not been aware of that feeling or that reaction um, because I just can only imagine what had to have happened to her to do that to me. But can, can I, I just want to rewind for just a little second. Mm -hmm. um, do you want some more water? Mm -mm. Okay, you lift up your glass. Um, because I saw, you know, you shifted into your feelings and then mm -hmm. I saw you just kind of keep moving through them. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if maybe it's up to you just rewind for a second and kind of like ground in that because that's the moment, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot of work to reconnect with my little girl self. Yeah. And let her let her do the feeling that I've been un, unwilling yeah. or unable and into an extent unwilling to feel. Um, and I go back and I talk to her and I go back to moments of you know when I was being victimized and I see that and I see her and I let her escape from the moment by connecting with me and yeah. telling me everything she's feeling and what she wishes she could do that she's not doing yeah. and you know I can never go back and make her do. So in that moment mm -hmm. with the girl that molested you who mm -hmm. threatened your family how was your experience of processing that in the moment? Like what what happened to you? I mean it's hard for me to say cuz I was so young so I can only really speak of my my adult experience of mem yeah. remembering it. Um to an extent. I know that when I was being molested, I would I would have the feeling of escaping my body and like looking down on myself. Yeah. yeah. And I carried that behavior into adulthood. Um, and now I understand in what I've, you know, how weight has affected my body, but in definitely in sexual circumstances, I would always have the feeling of being like, like it was an out of body experience. And I, I didn't... So even when you're overeating now, it's that same like out-of-body experience in a way. I don't know. I, I, no, no, no. I don't know. I don't... What I was talking about at least wasn't when I'm eating. What I was just talking about was when I am being sexual. I would have an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even after my marriage, I didn't connect that that was related to the feeling I had as a child. It was in my, I want to say, mid-late 20s that I finally had an aha moment when I was having an out-of-body experience. And I'm just like, why does this keep happening? Why can't I feel? And why does it always feel like this? This like floating, levitated, I'm not in my body feeling. And it was then that I remembered, oh, that's how I used to feel. That's what I used yeah, to do yeah. when I was a kid to like separate myself from it. Which is a whole other topic that I just feel the need to address for one second is that everybody kind of glorifies sex drive as a, a high sex drive as a good thing, you know, and, and also and a low sex drive is a bad thing and, and, and that in essence it's something we're born with, but the more that I've read about that, actually so much of our sex drive has to do with how we emotionally cope and maybe mm -hmm. we emotionally cope by being hypersexual or we emotionally cope by being True. hyposexual. Nobody ever talks about this. It's just kind of like, 
I want to have a lot of sex. This is a great thing, you know? And it's like, it's such an unfair statement. Well, I wanted, there was a period in my life I wanted to have a lot of sex, even though it wasn't a great thing. Like, I just what I'm talking about. like, I, 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 I was hypersexual and not enjoying it at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, that's what I would do. I would, I would dissociate from my yeah. body and, um. And and I think I I've been able to do that in a lot of different ways, you know. As um, I've gotten older, um, find different ways to like protect my soul, protect my real self, you know, and put put this feeling in this shelf, and put this feeling in this box, and put this feeling in this script, and put this feeling on that man, yeah. and you know, just put the feelings where I can see them. And the real me is somewhere floating above it all, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and I have some gratitude that that is the way that the it, that's a normal way that a human copes with with trauma, yeah. and that it protected me. And so then I, I'm thinking um, you've written a script about a girl who gets raped, basically from I, I can't remember the whole premise. She meets a guy, and they kind of you know they spend this whole evening together, and then he he rapes her Mm -hmm. and and it's like they have all this kind of like intimacy beforehand and all this is like mixed like it's not it's murky it's not clean yeah um i love this idea uh and and so then i'm thinking about how on one hand that had to be this huge moment for you because you were addressing this thing that's been inside you and then the disconnect that happened afterwards which is like part of you know like that's what we do is like we move forward and then we move laterally or maybe backwards like I'm thinking like how you allowed yourself to be seen in one hand and then it kind of like with my script yeah um well I wouldn't say it went away um you know the script came after I had called the massage company and told them about the mm-hmm. the molestation and just started to come to terms with I need to I need to come to terms yeah. with with what's happened to me um, and the script itself was just a download I wrote the first draft in less than 12 hours uh-huh. it just came to me and um, in trying to get it made and raise money I became very visible and, you know, trying to uh, fundraise through a Kickstarter, putting in all these videos and I'm like talking about it and writing about it and connecting with, you know, blogs and organizations that help survivors. And like I was very out there and it was very painful. It was very painful. I do a video and like put it out and then I would like curl up in a ball and feel like someone had ripped off all my skin. And I was like that for 60 days because that's that's how long that Kickstarter was. And um, and so since then, which really my my I, I did that from November eleventh to January tenth, ish. Um, since then, it's just been in a way. You know, my Kickstarter wasn't successful. I haven't gotten funding for the film, and I just have to imagine that's also divine grace. Um, I still want to make that film. I think it's an important topic, and I think the way that my script is dealing with it is really artful and nuanced and not something that we see a lot. 
Um, well, what I, what I was trying to get out, because like I said, I, I also think the idea, I mean, it's amazing, it's brilliant, and I know you're a brilliant writer because I've mm-hmm. read your stuff, mm-hmm. um, very talented, and um, was more like the certain amount of visibility, right, which was major progress for you, and then the backlash But that's what I'm saying, that yeah. I think it's maybe divine grace that I didn't get funding right then, because I still needed it. to yeah. deal with the things yeah. that that script was bringing up in yeah. me. Yeah. And so that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And so, I mean, on on the outside, it may seem like I'm not being as visible because I'm not like posting a da-da-da, you know, I survived rape. And, um, you know, I still post a lot about yes is yes consent because that's an important yeah. issue to me. Um, but I am being very visible and very present for my feelings and for the the pain and the shame and all the things that I've been suppressing for many uh-huh. years, you know, in in my private, you know, recovery circles, yeah. I, I'm dealing with it and being visible um, in that way. And I think, you know, I think the visibility will return in a more public way. Yeah. You know, when it when when it's time and when it's ready and something like this, I guess yeah. it's part of it. And I had the opportunity, I think I've told you about this too, to meet I mean, one of my muses, uh, Tori Amos, uh, who I've been a fan of since I was a preteen, and she has been very open about being a rape survivor um, and a spokesperson for Rain. And I got to meet her and connect with her and ask her, what is it like to feel like you have something to share? You've experienced this trauma. You have, you know, you have a take on it that's imp- you feel is important to give to the world and you're doing it, but you're also at the same time healing from it and in the thick of it, in the murk of it. And like, how do you show up for service in your trauma and still show up for yourself and self-care? Um, and, you know, she, she was beautiful and just was able to say, you do it imperfectly and um, you know, she was a, her. She's been a, a survivor of this trauma for you know double digit years for decades, and she was able to say to me, you know, in a public space, so I feel comfortable saying it here, that um, in the beginning it wasn't easy, and in the beginning she had a lot of trouble with it, yeah. and it's gotten easier because she's you know practiced and, and healed a lot, and she really said oh, she's just so amazing. She talked about being a channel that when you get to move into service and and that kind of public visibility Mm -hmm. with trauma it's not about me needing to fix anyone it's not that i have this message that's going to heal someone Mm -hmm. um and it's not i think at some point it becomes it can't be about me sharing it as healing me like at some point that's that also stops and it she just talked about you become a vessel for something higher than any of us than the artist or the person who is receiving the art to flow through so that that higher power is what's doing the healing you know for everyone involved yeah so let's go back to when you're getting the movie out uh putting it out there on your kickstarter campaign and and and, um what it was like for you and then you know, kind of, I don't know, almost like the rubber, you know, it was like a rubber band a little, like I'm out there, <sighs> no, let's try it, 
you know, it was a little like I remember I remember that like I remember how how hard it was for you to mm-hmm. even to put yourself. I mean, it was like pulling teeth like it was like it was so painful for you to keep which makes sense, of course. Right. Like if you spent all these years not dealing with it and then all of a sudden you're dealing with it like in a full public stop. space. Yeah. Full stop. It's like it's it's so much. And so and you're dealing with it and you're dealing with like your identity as an artist and like There's your so career happening. and your yeah. money like there was it was a lot wrapped up in well that. and and that goes to the there you know it's like how we handle one thing is how we handle everything right so the way you're processing things like through food is also the way you're processing things through work and like what mm-hmm. we allow ourselves and don't allow ourselves and all that kind of stuff so so what i'm curious about because you know i understand that it was divine intervention and stuff. and I truly do believe like we've had these conversations that in essence there are no mistakes mm-hmm. you know that you know everything can be a learning experience etc and and you know I believe in in some sort source energy for yeah. sure 100 percent aside from that mm-hmm. or in addition to shall we say how are you feeling about that how how am I how what are you how was I feeling in, yeah. the, in that moment after after the 60 days ended oh after after the 60 days, I feel like I, I took this space to really go in. I just didn't do it publicly. Mm-hmm. I started, I mean, in January, I started really getting serious about showing up face to face to be in community with other people who were, you know, daring to recover from uh-huh. trauma uh-huh. and family dysfunction. So I don't feel like I detached at all. Um, you were you were an important mirror to me in that time and you were encouraging me to go into the trauma in ways that when I was in the when I was in the thick of it in the 60 days doing my Kickstarter were you like shut up I am pretty sure I told you to shut up <laughs> you probably did <laughs> I remember being on the phone with you and I was walking my dogs I was like freaking out and I was, you know, in the middle of my Kickstarter and like just isolating, <laughs> like reaching out for all this yeah. support and also never wanting to leave my house. Yeah. And um, I was on the phone with you, like talking about it. And you were like, well, Jess, there's still, and you were, you know, offering, <laughs> kindly offering me uh, suggestions for support. And I just, I unloaded on you is what I felt. I, if you don't remember it this way, then bless your heart. Um, but I just felt like I was like, I don't want to hear that. That's I don't need to. I don't need that. That's not where I'm at right yeah. now. And uh, God bless you. And um, and, so and after I, I unloaded on you, and then I went home. I'm like, man, I really unloaded her. Oh. All she was trying to do was help me. Well, so maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh. So maybe. Which actually, by the way, like I mean. I don't really remember that because sometimes I, I can it. definitely like, well, the thing is, is like, I'm clearly in case you haven't <laughs> noticed you know, this whole podcast is based on the fact that I you push. can deal with abuse. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that is true, but that's not what I was going to say, but thank you for that. <laughs> that's also true. What I was going to say is I kind of push to levels of discomfort because I'm always about like the mm. growth and kind of going there and it can be instigating at times that, if you're not ready to hear yeah. it, it can really rub somebody the wrong way. And if you're ready to hear it, great. But otherwise, it can be very scary to receive that. And and I know that about myself. And sometimes it works in my favor. And sometimes I got to learn to like keep my mouth shut at other times, you know, um, you know, and show up in the best way that I can support others. But 
But, you know, we've had that kind of like conversation a few times where maybe I'm uh, kind of pushing you in more ways that you're ready for, which isn't. So it is kind of like uh, the way that I experienced it, which is kind of like, yeah, like, I just, like <laughs> this is normal. Yeah, well, I sometimes I can do that, you know, because so, I'm usually there for that. I'm not the person who I don't shy away from feelings you know, definitely talking about them and like getting juicy about it. And so when I was being defensive with you, that it was a big red flag because usually I, I I can go into the feelings. Wait, wait, wait. So this is what I was going to say mm-hmm. is I wonder if in that moment that, okay, you remember the backlash, if you felt shame about that, pulled away. And then I wonder what happened no, with your no. food at the moment. Didn't no, happen. That's, okay. not, that's not it at all. What I brought that up because before I surrendered to what you were suggesting, you were you were I said a mirror you could say an angel or an Eskimo like you were the one I got to talk about that with because I wasn't willing to talk about it outside of that for the record okay (laughs) you were the only one I was willing to talk about it with and so then once I surrendered to it I was able to open up and get more support and it didn't all have to be on your shoulders so so you may have experienced a detach but it it that wasn't that wasn't what was going on for me. Really, I was trying to get more support, you know, and, and I did. And then also, I'm just throwing this out there because it's kind of part of, I, you know, obviously it's related to the food stuff as well, is you were still, just so that you know for the record, yeah. able to use me as a support. Like you didn't have to say, okay, well now I found the support here, I don't have to go there. It could be both. Sure, and I mean, I, I don't know, I, I, I still feel like I, no, it was just at that moment in time. I yeah, I think it. Yeah. my response to that is that was about me opening up, not not trying to shut you out. Uh-huh. It was like you had opened a door for me and I saw all these beautiful people inside and then I got to be like, oh, I can talk to a lot of people at the party, you yeah. know. Oh, that's so and, good. And, and I did and, and, and continue to, so... But yeah. so and so then after that, though, I think, you know, what I'm getting at is when I, what I'm curious about is, you know, you you didn't get the funding at that point in time, mm-hmm. um, which I have complete faith in that it's going to happen at some point. I feel sure on that. You're an angel. I'm from an angel. From I know me. this kind You're of stuff. Lips to God's ears. <laughs> I hear that, people. Um, and uh, um, but just I'm thinking what happened job wise for you afterwards. Like, I remember you had a lot of surrender. There was no, you know, you also kind of stepped away from, did you step away from writing at that point or no? Um, my, or, or career writing and, you know, in that, that That's way. all been connected. Yeah. Yeah. Because the focus is on, on healing my trauma and feeling good. And it, as a filmmaker, as a, a woman of color, uh, writer director who writes in like pretty nuanced esoteric artsy fartsy mm-hmm. stuff. Um, there's a lot of trauma in pursuing my career, and I just can't show up for trauma in my career while I'm trying to show up for mm-hmm. you know this mm-hmm. healing this past trauma. Um, so my writing, you know, is so it's just kind of yeah, you step to the side. It, it's bit. here and there, you know. Um, which yeah. isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Because, no. like, on one hand, we could look at it as, um, well, could you allow both of those together, right? That's an option, right? Like, both of those can That's be That's where I think I'm moving to because as I, the harder I try to step and you experienced my wrath about that, I unloaded on you another time and you were like, <laughs> but you're going to keep writing and you're writing and you're going to keep writing. I'm like, no, I don't 
terrible. I am a terrible person. And no, uh, no, you're not. You're allowed. I see you for all your feelings and human. You're allowed to have messy, a messy very experience, right? Messy experience. <laughs> so I tried to like do a hard turn away from it, and early this year, and it's just, I. I what I'm Not only at. do so many people identify me as a writer, and they do, um, I just am. Like, I'm just a storyteller. It's just in me. I actually feel the best when I'm doing it. So I think where I'm moving to, I'm not there today, but where I'm moving to is is an integration of, like, peace and wellness and wholeness and financial security and, you know, whatever job, you know, ends up providing that and writing and yeah so what I was trying to get to yeah. with that was just you know how it mirrors food stuff is like I, I can kind of see you know whether it compulsive overeating uh bulimia anorexia like these can be metaphors for how we handle life right mm-hmm. and so like even even if you're an overeater in essence you still are an anorexic because you're not really giving yourself the thing you really need like, and the thing you really need to write is like the love, the validation for being seen, mm-hmm. right? And so you stepping away in that moment, which I, I see mm-hmm. that you already get this, mm-hmm. that you stepping away was like helpful and also anorexic. And your goal is to like, in the sense of like, on one hand, you're giving yourself what you ultimately the idea would be to give yourself fully what you need, fully integrated, like the work and the feelings, like both I, can happen, you know? I hear what you're saying. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. And I, I don't think it's, I think it's more complex than that. I feel like even in recovery from an eating disorder, there's often, or I'll say in my experience, there's a period that looks like restriction, can look like restriction, um, and getting comfortable with abstaining from the behavior. And, you know, I did that in my recovery from my eating disorder and shared that with my guide, like, oh, I think I'm restricting now. And I really got a lot of grace from her in saying that, yeah, that's to be expected. It's gonna calm down. This is part of the process. And so me stepping away initially, the way I experienced it, was it was like that that first step in detoxing. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. career vision detox. Like I need to, I need to be very clean right now because even a little bit of the drug can send me into chaos and so i need to kind of clean the drug out of my system by abstaining from it for a period and then i'll be able to incorporate it in a healthy way and you know addicts of um you know traditional substances like Mm -hmm. alcohol and and narcotics you know their goal is to never introduce the drug again but addicts to food and process and that sort of thing my goal is to incorporate you know the thing the process in a way that's healthy because i use the process in a way that's unhealthy i don't get get to get rid of the process altogether yeah. i get to have a healthy relationship with the process so i had to you know clean the drug out of my system for a bit so i can now have a hope of having a healthier relationship with my art why did you bring in this book hunger by Roxane gay okay so one, the title, <laughs> Hunger, a memoir of my body. I um, was at an event a few nights ago, um, a fundraiser uh, talk. It was uh, moderated by uh, Franklin Leonard. And um, 
Uh, it was for a fundraising for this film, Solace, uh, written directed by a friend of mine, Chaiko Omawale. And it is about many things, uh, young people of color exploring their sexuality, their trauma, their identity, uh, their activism. And um, the main character at the center is also um, a, coming to terms with an eating disorder. And Chaiko's very open about this uh, film not being about her, but being an expression of her own experience with an eating disorder. So anyway, Roxanne Gay has written this masterful book that's getting so much attention right now. And I think she said she had just finished her book tour and she was there and we got, I mean, the experience of watching two black women talk about eating disorders. I've never had that experience before in my life. Wow. And I'm about to be 40 years old. Most, most women on some level have an issue with their body, which, you know, and, and issues with food. Like, mm -hmm. to what degree that's, you know, highly variant. Mm -hmm. But there's really not that much out there on eating disorders. And it's an incredibly unsexy topic. Like, nobody wants to talk, like, God forbid you actually have an issue with your body. It's like, Oh, no, no, no. Like, we all disconnect from that. And even people's stories about eating disorders, it's like there's still such stigma around it. It's it's kind of insane for mm -hmm. the how rampant it runs in our culture. It's crazy. Well, that's where I think it comes back to, to me, at least, to trauma. And exactly. how, yeah, as yeah. a culture, we, we struggle with processing trauma. We, I don't think we figured it out, and I think it's led yeah. to the current political climate we're in. Yeah, that we have a lot of people that are not aware of their internalized trauma and that yeah. they haven't, you know, processed it and are looking outside of themselves for some savior that can uh, keep telling them that your trauma isn't real. And it, you know, and even, you can pull yourself b yeah. up by enough bootstraps to erase trauma and anyone who's talking about trauma just hasn't pulled themselves up enough by those bootstraps exactly it's so easy to go into denial and, and even i'm thinking with this whole conversation how maybe some people could listen to it and be like why wasn't there more talk about body stuff for example because it's not about the body it's mm -hmm. about the trauma but it's so easy to forget that just like the way I can, yeah. to me, the laser focus, this is my story, shut that shit down, focusing on the food and the body instead of the trauma, is when I was four years old and I was being molested and I didn't have the words to tell my family and I was being told, if you tell your family, I'm going to kill them, my response was to wake up at two o'clock in the morning, go to the refrigerator, open the door in the dark and eat butter like a banana. And my parents saw me. They would catch me doing this. And all they could say is, stop. Why do you yeah. eat like that? Yeah. You're going to get fat if you eat like that. And everything was about my body. Even at four years old, yeah. when I yeah. wasn't fat, it was about my body. And no one thought, why is she, why is she doing that? Let's talk yeah. to her. What's yeah. going on? And that personal experience, I think, is the way... On a macro level, people deal with trauma. Let's, Absolutely. Let's yeah. look at the surface. Yeah. And people deal with fat people. And people deal with with people who aren't fat but may do the unthinkable thing, become fat if they keep eating that way. It's yeah. 
How can we help you lose weight? How can we how can we help you continue to avoid whatever's making you eat that way? Yeah. Because if if you, like you I think you've said during this conversation, if you stop avoiding it, then I'm going to have to stop avoiding it. Yeah. Yeah. And if we don't if I don't focus on your weight, I'm going to have to focus on my problems. Yeah. And, and Nobody wants exactly, to do that. Exactly. And even, you know, I'm thinking, this is just another side note of the conversation about how if you're overweight, you know, there's so much stigma in our culture about being overweight and, and overweight people have to literally walk around with their shame out. Like mm-hmm. there's so much shame of, you know, like fat shaming in our mm-hmm. society. And that's the sad thing. It's like their bodies are literally saying, I am screaming for help. Like this external manifestation is of how much shame I'm actually feeling is revealed in my body and all we do is go ew yeah and you know I or I don't know enough to know whether and I imagine it's not the case I don't know that every fat person is dealing with trauma and shame I know that I am and you know part of the work for myself as an overweight person is loving and accepting my body the way it is and still dealing with my trauma. And I think as a society, part of the, you know, the mission, if we choose to take it, um, is to learn how to love every, everybody, you know, in their body. Yeah. So I am, to some extent, I would agree that I walk around with an obvious, you know, symptom of emotional pain, and that's excess weight, and um, that people see it, and very few of those people see ex- see pain; they just see weight, yeah. and um, and shy away from me, um, and in part, that's part of why I do it. That is exactly this, you know subconscious reason of why I, I allow the weight to stay on or when I'm because I've had the experiences of you know losing I lose weight get a boyfriend and and gain weight to push him away yeah totally gain then, weight to see well does he really love me could he if I was this fat could he look like yeah. there are all kinds yeah. of reasons you know or, or ways that I would do it um, without being aware I was you know doing that well and then even I'm thinking about you know, people who go anorexic tendency who are, or, or just like highly controlling with their food. And then actually that is, is revered in our society, but like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And then people gravitate toward that. What's your secret? What'd you do? Even though that person might be completely unhealthy. It's so interesting. It's like we revere the trauma in one way because it looks one way, but shame it in the other. Even yeah, though both of those people are the, experiencing trauma, like that's the thing. It's just a different manifestation of it. The one way, we, if as long as your body looks normal, then I, we can all still stay in denial about, you know, yeah. having feelings and not yeah. really knowing how to process them. Or anything, right? As long as your life looks normal in that way mm-hmm. or this particular, you know, whether it's food sure. or, you know, your drinking habit or, you know, your, if you, even workaholism, right? If, if you look really successful, like it's fine. Unless, unless you're totally unsuccessful or have gone off the deep end in some way, even though you actually might be highly functioning workaholic, which, you know, can be a, another way to cope with all the emotions that mm-hmm. you're pushing down. Yeah. What are you going to read me from that book? Um, I was just going to read you the 
beginning of um, how she, Roxanne Gay kind of prefaces what's going to come. And she's very candid about her weight coming on after sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for a woman of color, again, for a woman of color to be able to talk about sexual trauma and the body, I mean, it's just like, this is, she's a first. And she's saying she's sick of being a first. And if she's going to be a first, she wants to make sure she's not the last. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's her desire to really open up a, a channel of communication and expression for other people to share their stories, which she acknowledges is not going to be the same mm-hmm. as hers. And that's great, you know, that yeah. we all get to share different stories. Wait, before you go into that, I'm curious um, about, like, I know you've mentioned some things about how being a black woman and discussing weight and eating disorder, and the, you know, it's all um, taboo, uncomfortable. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know the, quite the right adjective for that. But I'm just wondering if you have any other... Um, experiences that you want to share on that or or thoughts or kind of observations because you know as a white woman I do not know how your experience is in your you know in black culture to Mm -hmm. have that you know I only know as as a white woman like what Mm -hmm. that looks like you know well I mean I think a lot of us no matter what race we are don't have the language or the wherewithal to acknowledge what is happening and what we're doing when we're young. Um, You know, if you have any sort of disordered behavior. Um, But if I I imagine if you can think back to childhood and after school specials and a very special, you know, episode of, uh, what was that? I don't know, I'm thinking thinking of this show my two dads i don't know why that came up Um, or it's a small wonder do you remember that show like they were always little white girls or white teenage girls uh what was it the episode of saved by the bell when she was eating diet having diet pills you know it was always a white girl who was able to tell the story Mm -hmm. you know of an eating disorder and so I imagine even if there were young white girls at home not having the language to articulate what was going on with them in their house, they were seeing someone who looked like them talk about it. And I was never seeing anyone who looked like me talk about it. So that meant it wasn't happening to me. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. even if there is something that describes this behavior, it's not for me. What I have is different. And so if we're not talking about it in my house, we're not talking about it at my auntie's house, we're not talking about it at school, no one is talking about it in my actual literal life and community, and art is not reflecting it either, there was just no space for me to have this. And so I didn't have it. And so are, would you say like that's the, the challenge in general of why it's not really discussed in, in black culture? I mean, I can venture to say why it's, you know, my own idea of why it's not discussed in black culture. I think as a culture, we are we are in the throes of recovering from trauma. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. In so many ways. Yeah. And, and that is really uncomfortable for the rest of the family, you know, in America. You know, like we're all a big family here, whether we like it or not. We're just very dysfunctional. Um, and part of the family is healing from a lot of pain. 
And some of that pain was perpetrated by other parts of the family. And it's really painful for that perpetrating part of the family to keep listening to the victimized part of the family yeah. because it makes them confront issues they're not comfortable with. And then the more I stay in, in my own you know, micro level life, the more I stay in my victim story, the more I stay in my victim story. Yeah. And I can't heal past that. So, you know, as a as a American family, we're in crisis. So um, I think black culture, if I can speak for it, is dealing with a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, your food is is real low on the list. And yeah. Mental health is real low on the list. And, you know, there's if you want to talk about a pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, it is very deep in black culture. You know, there there are some outside of black culture that, that don't think that exists in our culture. But there's a real mentality of you're you make you make your life, you're in control, suck it up, just, you know, be better, smarter, you know, do better. Mm-hmm. And 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 don't pay any attention to anything that might impede that. And in my experience, the trouble is not paying attention to those things is impeding it. You know, yeah. is impeding our ability to to be fully realized. Um, so yeah, it's and there's a lot of um, very surface level um, leaning on religion. I think in in my experience of of my blackness, and there can just if you can pray the gay away, you can certainly pray the fat away. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, you know the. Diabetes is is an, it, at, at epidemic proportions in Black culture. I mean, it, it's killing us to not talk yeah. about eating disorders, yeah. disordered eating. Yeah, yeah. But it's still really hard to talk about. That's why you know Chico's film and Roxane Gay's book. I mean, has has the power to start a conversation in a community yeah. that really needs to be talking about it, and so. Um, I hope Chico's film gets the kind of success that Roxanne's book does, or has. Let's, let's hear what you have to read for us. Just the beginning. So she writes, The story of my body is not a story of triumph. This is not a weight loss memoir. There will be no picture of a thin version of me, my slender body emblazoned across this book's cover, with me standing in one leg of my former, fatter self's jeans. This is not a book that will offer motivation. I don't have any powerful insight into what it takes to overcome an unruly body and unruly appetites. Mine is not a success story. Mine is simply a true story. I wish so very much that I could write a book about triumphant weight loss and how I learned how to live more effectively with my demons. I wish I could write a book about being at peace and loving myself wholly at any size. Instead, I have written this book which has been the most difficult writing experience of my life, one far more challenging than I could have ever imagined. When I set out to write Hunger, I was certain the words would come easily, the way they usually do. And what could be easier to write about than the body I have lived in for more than 40 years? But I soon realized I was not only writing a memoir of my body, I was forcing myself to look at what my body has endured, the weight I gained and how hard it has been to both live with and lose that weight. I've been forced to look at my guiltiest secrets. I've cut myself wide open. I am exposed. This is not comfortable. This is not easy. I wish I had the kind of strength and willpower to tell you a triumphant story. 
I am in search of that kind of strength and willpower. I am determined to be more than my body, what my body has endured, what my body has become. Determination, though, has not gotten me very far. Writing this book is a confession. These are the ugliest, weakest, barest parts of me. This is my truth. This is a memoir of my body, because more often than not, stories of bodies like mine are ignored or dismissed or derided. People see bodies like mine and make their assumptions. They think they know the why of my body. They do not. This is not a story of triumph, but this is a story that demands to be told and deserves to be heard. This is a book about my body, about my hunger, and ultimately, this is a book about disappearing and being lost and wanting so very much, wanting to be seen and understood. This is a book about learning, however slowly, to allow myself to be seen and understood. Wow. Yeah. So powerful. And I could hear while you were reading it, I could hear in your your the trauma in your own your own voice as you were reading it. Like I could hear it bubble up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh how how deeply you related to it. Mm-hmm. And I do as well. I mean she couldn't have said it better. I mean, so so eloquent. I love this topic. This is one that nobody ever wants to talk about. It's such a big one. Trauma and the body. Jesslyn Berry, the talented writer, thank you so, so much for, for talking to me. Just fascinating as usual. Thank you. This is a great conversation. Jesslyn is so clearly dedicated to her healing journey, and she just needs more, more love, more healing, more connection. And I have complete faith that she is going to get that integration that she so deeply desires. I love how we touched upon trauma and shame and and uh, culture and, and the effect that all of these things can have on our bodies. Now, while editing this episode, it occurred to me that, of course, there are varying degrees of sexual trauma. And in essence, most of us, especially women, have all experienced some sort of sexual trauma. Imagine a world where instead of us talking about what we ate and the guilt we felt about it when we ate it or, or whatever it looks like, instead of talking about the food, we talked about what we were feeling and what happened to us. Imagine what that world would look like. I'm Jacqueline, the therapist. Thank you for listening. <laughs>